0: In 2014, the High Court handed down what's become known as the Tracy ruling, changing how patients and their relatives need be involved in do not resuscitate decisions. Now, a series of articles on BMJ.com, an analysis article on the barriers to good care, an education article on emergency care plans, including resuscitation recommendations, and a personal view from one of Janet Tracy's relatives discuss how doctors might handle these conversations and situations better. I'm Helen MacDonald, Education Editor for the BMJ, and I'm joined by three of the authors of those articles. Zoe Fritz, Consultant Acute Physician and Welcome Fellow, David Pitcher from the Resuscitation Council, and Kate Masters, whose mother was Janet Tracy and whose case changed the way resuscitation decisions are made in this country. And I would really like to turn to you, Kate Masters, first and just to get a bit of scene setting here on your very personal experience um, of, of Do Not Resuscitate conversations and, and how they went well or not well, um, just to give us a bit of context.
1: Um, yeah, well, mum was taken into hospital following a car accident uh, in February 2011 and she'd been diagnosed with terminal cancer a couple of weeks before. About a week into her being in hospital, one of the doctors uh, decided that CPR wouldn't work for her. And uh, she'd had been she made it pretty clear that she wanted to be involved in all the discussions about the decisions about her care. Even when she was ventilated, she'd uh, had a little notepad and she wrote on it, uh, please do not exclude me. And it was in her medical notes as well that she wanted to be included. But um, when the doctor decided... That CPR wouldn't work for her. He didn't talk to her. He spoke to first of all my sister and then me and kind of said to us that they were going to try and remove the ventilation tube again and if she struggled then uh, they would increase her sedation and she would slip away. Mm -hmm. Mum didn't die that day She recovered and uh, she spent the afternoon chatting with us and with uh, the nurses about pastry recipes and, you know, she was hungry and she seemed to be getting better. The following week, once it had been removed, mum was moved to a ward and all that seemed to be spoken about was this form. It was really upsetting her. Mm. On one day that week, there are more notes in mum's medical records about this form, as it was to me at the time, than anything else and it was becoming just too much for her. She was really upset. So I said, can I have a word with them and just say, you know, can they talk to you about it when we're here? And she said, yes, so I did. So the doctors didn't talk to mum about the form again, but they did speak to us about it. And it was in pretty brutal terms. And if they did CPR, that it would break the ribs that weren't already broken, burn her skin, and she'll be awake through all this. She could be left in a vegetative state and did I want to do that to her? And there was a second one place following weekend just before Mum died. The way that affected my Mum's death was that there was no time to plan. All the all my Mum's last weekend, we were planning to get her out of the hospital to a hospice. And the forms that were put in place on the last Saturday of my Mum's life meant that that was never going to happen. So there was a DNA CPR and the Liverpool Care Pathway, but. The forms seemed to dictate my mum's care. And it was only really after she died that we had a chance to think more about it. And when we got the medical records from the hospital, um, it was quite telling that the one on the top was the second DNA CPR form. It seemed to be the most important thing, and it did seem to dictate her care in the Mm -hmm. last week of her life. And
0: how have things changed for you? Because... You sort of found yourself at the centre then, I guess, of something which has really developed and taken um, various twists and turns. What have you heard from other patients and how have they responded to to your experience?
1: Well, first of all, my journey was to try and find something more about this form that seemed to be so important when mum had died so suddenly. And at that time, there wasn't really anything available. I mean, just like most patients, I headed for Google there really wasn't much on there aimed at patients. There was lots of things from the GMC and other organisations. One of the first things that was quite shocking was that when you see a form in someone's medical record you think, well where's my mum's signature? One of the first things I found out was that this form didn't need consent and it was sort of by a quirk of it being to withholding treatment rather than giving treatment. That kind of puts you in a bit of a spin because it makes you think well that was a bit devious not only was the wording of the discussion which wasn't really a discussion quite ambiguous but also this seems a little bit it seems a little bit devious a little bit uh, murky yeah. and that made me mistrust doctors for quite a long mm-hmm. time
0: can give you a rest, Kate, and come across. Um, thank you for, for okay. sharing so much of that. It was I didn't want to interrupt you because it was just so interesting to, to listen to it, um, and come across to Zoe. Um, so you, how how did your sort of interest in this topic and the work that you've been
2: doing recently? How does that interface with Kate's experience? Um, so I was a registrar in acute medicine and intensive care medicine at about that time, and I was quite troubled by many aspects of do not resuscitate orders. Um, So just from clinical experience, I was concerned that there wasn't consistency in when they were considered. And there certainly wasn't consistency, as Kate says, in when they were discussed or how they were discussed. And it appeared to me that they seemed to have a primacy that went beyond what they should. So as she mentioned, they went right on the front of the notes. That's so they can be instantly identified in an emergency. But as such, they become the first thing that people see when they see the notes. And as Kate also said, this is about a treatment to be withheld. And so it felt like a bit of a stop sign in the front of the notes. And I was worried about the effect that that would have on patient care. So with the support of my colleague, Jonathan Fold, I put together a grant from the NIHR to do a programme of research, really looking at the effect that Do Not Resuscitate Orders had on patient care. For the sake of speed, some are like, allied. All of the information <laughs> into one, rather than breaking them yes, down. Yes, do do. Um, so essentially, there were multiple problems that were found mm. with do not resuscitate orders, and the first was that they weren't considered consistently. So there was variation um, not only between hospitals or between wards, but even among different clinicians on the same ward. So, um, and as a result, uh, patients remained. Um, or had resuscitation attempts on them that were unlikely to be successful. And uh, while Kate's story is very much about a DNA CPR that was there without discussion and and the anguish that caused, there was also anguish being caused when patients had CPR attempted when they didn't want it. So it was kind of both mm. sides of the fact that it was inconsistently done. Um, the discussions were inconsistent, to say the least, and generally pretty poor because, as Kate has emphasised, there was often a lot of talk about why it wasn't a good idea, rather than kind of starting the conversation openly. Um, and there's quite a lot of evidence that patients don't really want to initiate these conversations. They don't feel it's their job, quite reasonably. But even if you give patients information leaflets, they often don't want to start a discussion about resuscitation, when's the right time to do it. And doctors don't like talking about it, partly, I think, because most of our career is about trying to make people better. And it changes the nature of the conversation when you suddenly go, By the way, here's something we don't think is going to work for you. And what does that do to the trust and the relationship between the patient and doctor? So you've got a conversation that kind of needs to happen. and Neither group really wants to start it. Um, And then we get to the kind of biggest problem, which I would like to emphasize is not the case, you know, everywhere. And there are examples of good practice. But the biggest problem, in my view, was that DNA CPR was being conflated with don't give other treatments. So there was a misunderstanding where do not resuscitate should just mean don't try and restart your heart in the event of a heart stopping um, but in fact it was c- being understood to mean don't escalate up if you become sick in the middle of the night, don't go to ICU, um, so so nurses weren't calling the doctors in the middle of the night, doctor, doctors weren't calling ICU and ICU weren't coming to see the patients and there's various bits of evidence that this applied not only to the kind of extreme treatments like intensive care but simple measures such as heart failure, so a patient with a DNA CPR with heart failure is less likely to get an ACE inhibitor started or be started on anticoagulation or really simple measures that probably should be fine. And in fact, most patients with DNA CPRs aren't about to die. About 50% of them are discharged home. So this was a major problem and a strong ethical issue. And so from all of that, um, we have attempted to try and develop an alternative approach. So in Adam Brooks, we developed the universal form of treatment options with my colleague Jonathan Fuld. And the idea of this was to switch things on its head and say, instead of talking about a treatment not to be given, we're going to talk about which treatments should be given. And we're going to do this routinely and we're going to start the conversations early. And any new approach needs to have a few important characteristics. Mm -hmm. And those characteristics are, (laughs) drum roll, (laughs) that it should make sure that it's not just about the resuscitation decision on its own. That it should be encouraging a conversation between patients and doctors so that we can understand, first of all, what patients' goals of care are and what outcomes would be valued by them rather than just focusing on the treatment. And that it should, wherever possible, be able to be considered early, maybe even routinely, so that there is consistency in approach and so that people aren't having to suddenly confront a quite scary conversation when they're very ill. And maybe they will still need to have a conversation when they're very ill, but they'll at least have started the conversation early. And so um, I'm kind of leaving all the respect stuff for Sir David. But I guess what I wanted to say was all of this kind of looking at all of the problems of DNA CPR, then developing research towards um, a new approach, and then integrating that was to say let's try and let's try and solve these problems by by changing the approach. So it's mm. a. So we should hear from you,
0: David. Uh, about the approach. (laughs) Tell tell us what RESPECT is first.
3: Uh, The acronym RESPECT stands for Recommended Summary Plan for Emergency Care and Treatment. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit of a mouthful but it it basically emphasises two important aspects Mm -hmm. of an emergency care plan of this sort. Uh, One is that we're not talking about binding decisions what is recorded are recommendations to guide the people who have to respond in an emergency and the only exception to that is uh, under the mental capacity act where somebody makes an advanced decision to refuse treatment which is consistent with the MCA
0: what's the MCA MCA
3: mental capacity act sorry i'm referring back to that Um, So, consistent with the the Mental Capacity Act uh, and that is then a legally binding document provided it is valid and appropriate and and there are certain criteria which people can use to assess that. So these are recommendations. And the second important word is summary because this is not intended to be a detailed care plan. This is a summary so that it's easy to read quickly by people faced with that emergency having to make immediate decisions in a hurry.
0: And I suppose who may not also know the patient Absolutely, well.
3: uh, absolutely correct. Uh, they may never, it may be for example, an ambulance clinician mm-hmm. on a 999 call or an out of hours doctor who is uh, covering an area and doesn't know the patient. So that's what RESPECT stands for. But RESPECT is not just a form. And I think that's really important. I think we all recognised at an early stage that the sort of problems that both Kate and Zoe have described were not going to be solved just by creating a new piece of paper or a new digital form, that we needed to change culture. We needed to get health professionals, care professionals much more used to having the sort of conversations that didn't happen in Kate's mother's case,
0: and to keep you on the emergency track here, you mentioned in the piece, it, it may be helpful for clinicians to think about for that person in their circumstances with that condition, what are the likely or the most likely types of scenarios that they could face where an emergency arises and they might not be able to express themselves clearly, um, which I found very useful because sometimes I think if you're going to have that discussion, there's such a broad range of things that might happen to you in life and such a broad range of treatments that are available and locations where you can have them. So can you say a bit more about, about that aspect?
3: Yeah, I, uh, this is really important as, you, as you've picked up on. Um, once you've agreed that shared understanding of where the person is and what the future may hold for them, they may be somebody, for example, who is at significant risk of having a sudden stroke. Or they may be somebody with a long-term condition that is at risk of having life-threatening infections, or may be at risk of having uh, epileptic seizures. There are all sorts of different scenarios, so that's why it's important to focus on the individual and not to to look at that that broader. Well, you know, you might get knocked down by a bus, or you might have a sudden event that we can't even think about but looking at that person's situation and saying what are the most likely things that could happen to you in the foreseeable future that you would want to plan for.
0: Mm. So sort of differentiating it from their routine care planning really thinking about this as an emergency plan.
3: It's focusing on, on that emergency in which they would be critically ill or seriously ill and could possibly be unable to make decisions or express themselves.
2: Mm. I was going to add that where um, respect has been implemented in, in some places early and we found that there are certain conditions that really lend themselves to making sure we've thought about what treatments patients would want and would benefit from. So, for example, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease is a particularly good example where respiratory physicians have been able to actually have conversations with patients and outpatients um so that when they come in desperately breathless from an infection or or hypoxia for some reason and um, we know whether they want to go back to intensive care because actually often these patients have gone to intensive care more than one occasion we can have some idea of that or um it also can be a prompt for having a wider conversation about what kind of things to expect and kate was saying earlier that your mother hadn't you know had been asked quite late about whether she wanted to be at home and i think understanding that early is quite an important thing that perhaps we can help with.
1: Well, knowing um, other relatives who've been in hospital and wanted to go home, the process can be quite lengthy to get out of hospital, especially when somebody is dying. And I've had that on other occasions with other family members now as well. So the earlier, the better, really, preferably before you even end up in hospital, because with some people, I think they would prefer not to go into hospital, but it's the expected thing to do. And the conversation isn't had early enough with them to say, would you actually want to go back into hospital if this happened again? What can we do for you at home? And I think that would be my utopia, really, to speak to people before they get to the point of being in hospital in a really critical situation where it is hard to think straight, I think.
2: And that's one of the things that we would be hoping would be able to be expressed because by swapping from a form that just talks about one thing not to be given if you're saying what's your overall goal of care what's your priority one of those things might be i want to stay at home now for some patients that's absolutely not going to be the case and i guess i want to really emphasize that this could just be as much about treatments that are wanted um but i think it's important that there would be scope for this to be documented in the community and understood that that might be something that isn't wanted it always
1: comes back to the thing that is the it's just the scene that runs through why my dad took the case in the first place it is that all about individual care, what people want. And you're never going to get that if you don't talk to people, Mm. which is why it was so important for my dad that his case was never really about the decision-making process that didn't really come up at all. It was why didn't they talk to my mum? Why didn't they explain to her what was possible? Why didn't she get the chance when she so desperately wanted it to talk about what was going to happen? Mm. And that really is the crux of it. When you were talking about the discussion before, you used quite
0: emotive language when you were talking about how the doctors were describing mm. um CPR. And I don't know, um, David, whether in in writing your piece or through your work, Zoe, you've come across ways that would be better to describe it that don't that don't, I suppose, um make mm. it sound too.
1: Well, I think we were in a bit of a conflict situation by that point and it did feel like it was trained into the doctors, it did feel a bit more systemic that this is how they'd been trained to deal with a conflict situation with DNA CPR because every doctor who described it used the same language and the same theme and the same method and the same structure to the sentences and that really did feel like it was something to do with training. Mm.
0: I'm just going to pause at this point and introduce Kate Adlington who's an editor at the BMJ and has been listening into our conversation. Kate you've worked at hospitals a lot and I
2: can see that you've got something you want to ask here. I was just going to pick up on that actually and just say um, certainly from my experience there has in training sort of been a focus on that very Mm. sort of more narrow conversation around um, DNA CPR forms and is there a role about expanding this training medical schools earlier in our training um, so that you know it shouldn't be something that's just for say the consultant to discuss on a post-take ward round but that any doctor or any healthcare professional should feel we were talking about patients feeling empowered but also you know healthcare professionals feeling empowered to have those conversations
0: David, you've written the education piece on how to do this better. So if you were going to describe the process of resuscitation, what that means for a patient, how can you do it without using very emotive language or language that makes it feel like a coercive conversation?
3: The important thing to stress is that you don't start by talking about CPR. You've already gone through that sequence of discussion so that you know what the goals of care for each individual person is when it comes to recording a decision one way or the other to recommend CPR or recommend not for CPR, it's all about talking to the person to set the scene so that not only have you got a shared understanding of what their goals of care are, but what is their understanding of what CPR is about? Mm -hmm. Because many people won't know what it's about. Others will be quite well informed. They may have themselves or family members have had first aid training and and uh, uh, and so on and of course people have seen CPR on television which doesn't really portray uh, the reality of the situation so it's it's about getting an understanding of what they think CPR is about and gently sensitively explaining to them what's involved that it does involve chest compressions that can be quite vigorous. It does involve usually blowing air or oxygen into the lungs. It is quite likely to involve involve inserting a a needle or a cannula into a vein and using drugs. And in some situations it would involve uh, giving electric shocks across the chest. Those are facts and, and you can't get away from them, but it's the style in which they're presented. If they're presented honestly and openly in the right context, then it helps people to understand what what it's all about. And
0: how does that sound to you, Kate? Does that sound understandable and less emotive as a description? Do you think the public would readily be able to grasp what was going to happen from from sharing words like that?
1: About CPR? Well, one of the issues I have with CPR is that it's the one universally expected Treatment that you never sign a consent form for because it's an emergency treatment. And one of the biggest problems I think is that the only time you really get to understand the limits of CPR is potentially when you are dying. And it's explained to you that actually this thing that you might have thought is going to work for the whole of your life, it's it's a fantastic miracle treatment, whether it be misinformation from the media or the fact that we never speak to our doctors about it, um, it's just not going to work. And that, I think, is something that makes it harder to have the discussion. I think talking about it in a very factual and sensitive way is the best way to do it, because if if it is brutal, it is just too coercive, and it makes you feel like I... The doctors did say to me, do you want to do this to your mum? And I said, of course I don't, but she's made her decision. She doesn't want that. And it was quite a... We're kind of visitors, when you go into hospital you're a visitor into the hospital and when you're met with that it's quite a tough thing to say actually no because we are very guided by clinicians, by what they say and on the whole we go yeah okay, (laughs) yes please can you do everything that you can to help.
2: I think that's a really important point about um, relatives being visitors and actually apropos you saying about training um, juniors. So I teach at Cambridge the medical students and we do a whole half day on resuscitation and other decisions and one of the explicit things I say is that the culture has changed over the last 50 years. So 50 years ago people did die at home more and actually the doctor was the visitor and the doctor had to do as the family requested and we're now kind of tilting back a little bit but um, a lot of people still die in hospital, and I think we have to, we as doctors, have to be very aware that patients and relatives are kind of following our mores and our expectations, and that we need to try and bend over backwards to make sure for that. But just Kate, uh, um, Kate Adlington, I totally agree we need to be starting education early. And I think there are <clears throat> phrases, so um, David mentioned some, but I think, is it Gordon Caldwell? Mm. Has a really, I'm going to be paraphrasing him, I hope I do it accurately, <laughs> but he talks about how it's a good idea to. Um, express to patients the different of where the dying process started. So if the heart, everyone's heart stops in the end, but if the heart stops as a result of um, a pathology that has involved the whole body, so a, a cancer or organ failure, and the, the, or, or even extreme old age and frailty, and the heart is just stopping because the whole body is dying and the heart stopping is the last point of it, then CPR has very little chance of success. And, and actually going through the details of of what CPR entails is perhaps not necessary in that Mm. kind of conversation. You can just say the heart might stop because the rest of the body's dying and we would have very little chance of restarting it without having to be Mm. explicit about what it entailed, I think. Um, Whereas in other situations where CPR is more likely to be successful, it's where there's a a primary problem with the heart. And I think that's probably quite a useful um, thing to do. Mm. The other thing I was just on the wards last week um, is just asking patients routinely about... Because um, I do think the culture is changing and people do know more. And so I routinely ask patients if there are treatments that they would or wouldn't want. And they normally say, what kind of thing do you mean? And I say, well, some people feel strongly about things like blood transfusions. Other people feel strongly about having their heart restarted. And a huge number of patients say to me, I definitely don't want my heart restarted. I don't want a lingering death. That's another thing people explicitly say. If my time's come, it's come. and And if you've heard that from a patient, then that opens up the possibility to have a greater conversation about exactly what they mean and make sure that you're not acting in euphemisms and and acting wrongly on what someone says. But generally, I found that particularly older patients, particularly independent older patients, if they say to me, I don't want any treatment that will leave me in a dependent state, then I can say to them, I take it by that to mean that you wouldn't want us to attempt to restart your heart if it should stop. And they say, absolutely not. So I think depending on where you start the conversation, it can actually be a very easy conversation. And I think some patients really welcome it, and it can be quite a relief to hear about what what they don't want, so long as you're also talking about what you do want. So what they do want is to live an independent life as long as possible. And what they do want is to um, have treatments to alleviate any other symptoms they have and so on. Mm. So I think we've we've got ourselves in a complete pickle by only talking about one treatment in isolation of others and only talking about when not to give it. And that's why I think there needs to be a culture
0: There was another thread that we briefly touched on, which I wanted to come back to, which was that um, you said, Kate, that at the point that these conversations were progressing in whatever way they were with you, it felt like it was sort of unproductive that there was a a combat situation. And um, David, in in the article, you have made some suggestions about what to do if this conversation has... um, isn't progressing well and the doctors not getting their being able to express themselves clearly or the relatives are, are not understanding the conversation or something is not working how can you go about trying to improve it
3: inevitably there will be some cases some instances where there is disagreement hopefully if people get training As people get better and better at doing this those disagreements will become less frequent and that's what I think we'd all like to see Um, but if there is persistent disagreement whichever health professionals are involved in the conversation are really not making progress the first thing to do is to try explaining again because it may be that the explanation that you've given isn't understood by the, the person who's been listening. They've misinterpreted. And we, we've heard from Kate and we completely understand how stressful it is to have uh, a relative who's sick in hospital. Uh, I can remember when my own mother died in hospital and, and it was an extremely fraught time for all the family. So... Trying to keep things in perspective, trying to remember what you've been told, trying to understand what is being said to you in sometimes language that isn't terribly familiar to you can be really difficult. Mm-hmm. So going back to the beginning and explaining again in perhaps using different language, trying to understand uh, what the, the family or other uh, carers need to know in order to understand. If that doesn't work then call in either somebody more senior if the person involved is relatively junior or call in a second opinion offer the person and the family a chance to have another experienced clinician come and take an independent look it will usually be someone from the same organization because of of the practicality of it Um, but nevertheless get somebody who doesn't know the person to come and take a fresh look and advise the person and their family on what the best way forward would be. It always helps to start with, if the opportunity has arisen, to have given the advice based not on one person's clinical judgment but on the judgment of a team of health professionals So if there are doctors and nurses all looking after the same person who are all in agreement, then at least the person and their family can have an understanding that this is not a snap judgment by one person working under pressure and rushing off to do something else. If you're really getting into difficulties, if the second opinion has not helped to resolve the situation, then there will be instances where legal advice is needed. We hope, as I've said already, that if we can get more training available for people, help people to have these conversations that are often described as difficult, but they're probably difficult because people haven't had that training and that experience in using them. If they could be offered that training then they could have them with greater confidence and they would probably find that many of them are actually not that difficult but they are really important conversations. So when I'm talking about these I talk about them as important conversations not as difficult conversations.
1: I know that that's a kind of a process and a lot of trust policies don't allow for this but the value of nurses because they have a completely different relationship with the patient. When I've done some talks and I've spoken to nurses they're very willing to have these conversations with patients but they're not allowed because of the policy and all I've said to them is well basically your trust can make the policy if you feel sufficiently trained and you'd like to be involved then bring it up with your resuscitation officer because The nurse has a completely different relationship with the patient than the doctor does. The doctor might just be there in and out, the consultant maybe once a day. But the nurses are there all the time and they have a completely different trust relationship with the patient. And I think the value of nurses in the conversation really can't be understated. I think they could have quite a big part to play. So it's not always an upward escalation. It's just maybe a different voice or a different way of explaining.
0: And Kate, you... You've heard from from both David and Zoe that they feel there is a cultural change happening now. From the patient perspective, do you, do you feel that? Do you hear that in what people are saying to you? Do you sense that there's improvement
1: in this area? Unfortunately, I still get people contacting me only because there's been a bad experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't had one for a few months, which has been quite nice. But I would love to see some more positive experiences shared Mm -hmm. to show that it can be done well
0: thanks all of you for joining us you've been listening to kate masters zoe fritz and david pitcher discuss emergency care plans and resuscitation recommendations the articles that prompted this discussion are available on bmj.com the links are in the podcast text if you've enjoyed listening to this comment rate and share it you can subscribe to us on itunes and hear our full back catalogue on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening.